For those of you that are new here this morning, uh, we are in a series of messages that we are calling Saturate. And uh, the reason that we're calling this series Saturate is because we're going through the book of Acts. And if you've ever read through the book of Acts before, you've ever read any portion of the book of Acts, you'll notice that it's the story of the church. The story of the church. Jesus has ascended. He's gone to heaven. He's given His power and His Spirit and His Word to His church. And they've got all the tools they need to see the Gospel go forth. And the journey that we see the Gospel going forth is this deep and wide journey. It goes from Jerusalem to Judea to all of Samaria to the ends of the world. But it doesn't stop by going out in distance, but it goes deep down into the crevices of our hearts, to the unbelieving places of our hearts. We see the hardest of sinners turn back and repent. We see the, the warm glow of the Spirit soften even the hardest of sinners. And, and so it's this, it's this deep and wide journey of the Gospel. And, and the way that the Gospel goes forth, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is through proclamation. That the Word has to be preached because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. The Word has to be spoken in love, as Paul says, because that's how we're changed. And from there, it's demonstrated. And so we see the believers in Acts 2 are together and they have all things in common. And so we see the Gospel going forth. And I see the Gospel going forth in New City Church this morning. And it's exciting to me. So where we're picking up today is in Acts chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. And to just give you a little bit of context about where we're at particularly this morning is uh, my brother Sam King preached last week. We, we looked at Acts chapter 3. And Acts chapter 3 was this interesting story of the first miracle in the church. So the first realization that the church actually had the power of the Spirit dwelling within them. They see this man that's lame from birth get up and walk and worship for the first time. He comes in to the temple courts for the first time and worships the name of God. And, and as we saw last week, he didn't just walk in there. That boy was dancing into the temple courts because he had never been able to worship. He'd always been an outsider. But for the first time, he was welcomed. And God healed him, not just physically, but spiritually. So with that being said, let's turn to Acts chapter 4. And if you're able to, I'd love you to stand in honor of God and His Word. And, and we'll read His Word together here. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means that this has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that you reject that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, those are weighty words. Those are words that uh, we would not say if they were not true. So Father, if there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, as Acts 4.12 says, would You show us the treasure of salvation that's to be found in Jesus this morning? Would it hit us fresh this morning? Like Peter and John had this kind of fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Would You fill us anew this morning? Would you let us see and savor not only the name of Jesus, but the person of Jesus and His presence that's with us through His Holy Spirit. So God, move mightily in our midst this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I've been noticing a theme in the book of Acts, and I looked it up this morning, and the theme is kind of like this. Almost in every sermon... Whoever's preaching the sermon talks about death. It's, it's interesting because I, I think there's a reason why they talk about death. And as you look in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says that the Sadducees came upon them and they were greatly annoyed or disturbed. They were frustrated. And why were they frustrated? These were fellow Jews along with them. Why were they frustrated? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. I don't know about you, but um, I don't think about death as often as I should. And, And it seems to me that in the Scriptures, the extent of our ability to gaze upon salvation is proportionately related to our consideration of death. Does that make sense? We are limited in the way that we view our salvation to what we think about our death. So if we don't think much of our death, we don't think much of our salvation in other words. And many of us have sat under hellfire and brimstone sermons and messages and we've, we've seen the guys on the corner of the streets that are holding the sign that say you're going to burn unless you repent. And we, we kind of looked at it and said, well, that's not... That might have a place, but it doesn't seem to be so effective. And so what we've done is we've kind of stepped on the other side of this ditch and we've said, well, I'm just not going to consider it at all. I was sitting in Indianapolis. I was a student ministries pastor at a church and I'll never forget the night that I sat with a young 12-year-old boy who had just lost his father to cancer and I saw saw them carry his father out in a body bag. And there's never going to be a day that that young boy doesn't think about that night. And I sat there with him, and my father's still alive. His father was a great man. I mean, just, I mean, 4,000 people came to his funeral. He was this tremendous man of God. And I sat there with him thinking about death, thinking about hope and death, certainty in death, and what that would mean for Craig. I recently heard the story of a, of a pastor who went to meet with a man that was on his deathbed. And as he goes to meet with this man on his deathbed, he, he walks away commenting something like this. He said, I've never met a person before that was um, so happy and excited about a future that was unknown, basically. That he didn't really believe in Jesus at all. The only name in which we have a hope in death 
He didn't really believe in him at all, but he didn't, wasn't really concerned about death. It just didn't make any sense to this guy. And I would say the same thing. I meet people time and time again that, that when you begin to talk about the certainty of death, and we all know it's coming. We, we all know that physically we are going to die. But yet we meet people that are, they have no plan. They have a plan for everything else, but they have no plan for what that means for them. So I find it interesting as I look at that, that that seems to be the disciples' trump card as they preach the gospel. That they are, they're, they're getting under the, 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 the skin of the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees are, they're, they're a sect of Jewish rulers. And the Sadducees uh, were, were the wealthiest uh, and they kind of had their own theology. They were, they were the most powerful, they're most wealthy, uh, but they had this theology. And one of the components of their theology was that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were kind of a, a, a deist of sorts. That they, they believed in God, but they didn't really think that he was interested in the day-to-day activities. And when it came to think about death, they were kind of all over the map on it. And so this really troubled them. And And it's interesting because it seems like Peter and John kind of knew that and they were putting their finger right on that spot. You know what I mean? The the spot that we're just kind of insecure about and and God seems to be just really interested in. Kind of kept putting the finger on that spot. I'm, I'm reminded of the words of Psalm chapter 90 verse 12. Oh, and here's the, I'm, 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 I have four points, by the way. I've just kind of gotten into it here. The first one is this. We have incredible hope in death. Incredible hope in death. So why are we afraid of it? Why are we afraid of death? Because we have incredible hope. And in fact, the, the disciples thought that it was actually the best news. That death couldn't hold them down. That death had no sting, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Psalm 90, 12, back to it, says this. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to think about our death. That's interesting. Teach us to number our days that we may get or gain a heart of wisdom. That there's wisdom, there's things to be grasped by us that cannot be grasped unless we think about the number of our days. We we think about the legacy that we'll leave. we, We consider the things that are actually important in life when we think about death, don't we? There's, there's a grace that's given to us as we think about that that can't be given to us in any other way. This was mentioned by Mike earlier in his prayer. Philippians 1.21 is another way that we, we see Paul kind of talking about death. He says, he's, he's encouraging this church in Philippi and he says this, for me to live is Christ, but to die, to die is gain. So if living is Christ, dying is gain because he gets to go and be with the Father. He gets to experience the fullness of who Christ is. So death was something that Paul looked forward to. And here's the big idea of where this whole sermon is going today. I know you typically don't hear me start a sermon out by giving you the good news of like, hey, I want you to think about your death this morning. But I'm telling you that the, the disciples, the apostles in, in the book of Acts seem to think that, hey, there's, there's a way that we can be comforted as we think about that. The big idea is this. Only Jesus can bring life because only Jesus dealt with death. Only Jesus can give life because only Jesus dealt with death. So that's where we're going today. Second point I want to talk about is this, is the gospel advances in opposition. Did you know this? That there has never been a notable period in church history 
where the gospel went forth and the church exploded and grew that, was, that, that didn't have opposition in it. That, that, that's, that's not, that those two things aren't congruent. You know, uh, peace in the sense of like not opposition or persecution in the growth of the church. The church is always birthed and grows out of opposition. So why would we, if, if the, the history of the saints in the world, every Christian that's ever lived, every follower of God that's ever lived, if they, did, if, if they only grew in the soils of persecution and opposition, why would we expect to grow in anything else? Why would we expect that, that we're, we're exempt and we're, we don't have to deal with opposition and persecution? There's something for it. There's something for it for the church. There's something in it for us as the church that we cannot attain apart from opposition and persecution. And do you know why Christianity is opposed? Because it's extremely offensive. It's, it's extremely offensive. Now, I've, I've kind of walked down the road before sharing the gospel with people and, and trying to make it like easy to hear. Like I've tried to take down all the roadblocks, you know, and just, yeah, why don't you just... Why don't you just follow God? What do you have to lose? Kind of that route. But I've found that that's very fruitless and often not true. Because Jesus says you've got to lose everything to follow Him, right? That's what He says. Jesus tells them that this is coming. I want, I want to turn to Mark chapter 13. So this is G- Jesus' disciples that are now, you know, the apostles that are charged with, with uh, proclaiming the gospel. They would have been reminded of these words that Jesus spoke to him. He speaks a similar word in Matthew, but I'm going to look at Mark 13, 9-11. And here's, here's what Jesus says to His disciples. He's, he's kind of prophesying about what's to come. He says, But be on your guard, for they, the, the leaders, the Sanhedrin, uh, will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. There's some good news for you this morning. Uh, and you will stand before governors and kings for My sake to bear witness before them. Hey, so... Jesus just wanted, to, he just wanted to give them this good news along the way. Hey guys, you're going to be beaten. <laughs> Welcome to the club. You're going to be beaten. But then he says this, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, here's the good news right here. Don't be anxious beforehand about what you're going to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So here's the apostles. They've been arrested, okay? So they healed this man. They pre- I mean, it had to feel great to preach that sermon that led 3,000 people to Christ, right? I mean, that had to be a high for Peter, right? So he preaches this sermon. Things are going great. The, the church is living like the family of God. They're, they're sharing life together all the time. They, they've got this community. And then all of a sudden, they heal this lame man. And they've they got to be thinking, in hindsight, maybe we shouldn't have healed this guy because now... Now we're getting arrested. Now if we wouldn't have just healed the guy, would he just went on our way? Maybe everything would have been better. But we see in the, in the, in the back half of Acts chapter 4 that they pray. They pray. And, and the way that they pray is not to be delivered from opposition. They don't say, hey, God, help us hide out better from the opposition. Help us hide out better from the persecution that we're going to face for proclaiming the most offensive message on the face of the earth, which is the gospel. Instead, they pray for boldness. They pray that they would endure whatever is to come because there's something to be gained in the opposition that can't be gotten any other way. The gospel is offensive because it deconstructs 
our pride and our flesh. It, it takes away everything that we think that can save us. And it says there's no other way except in Jesus that you can deal with death. Like you can, you can appease your, your conscience and your soul by buying a lot of stuff, by surrounding yourself with certain people, by marrying a person that would seemingly make you happy, by having lots of children, by having you know, a nice house or going on great vacations. Like those can last maybe for a moment, but they have no power in the grand scheme of things. And so the gospel deconstructs all of those things. I'm reminded of the, the rich man that comes to Jesus. And he says something along the lines of like, like he, wants to, he wants to have eternal life. Something along those, those lines. And Jesus says, okay. He, he, he tells him something that he, we, we don't see him tell anyone else. He says, hey, okay. Go and sell all that you have and then you'll have eternal life. Go and get rid of it all. Because that was the thing in the guy's life. The thing's going to be different for you probably. But the Gospel has come to destroy that in your life. That comfort, whatever it could be. It's come to, to deconstruct it. Because here's what happens, is that discomfort has to come before comfort can come. There has to be a moment of crisis in our life where we see that I've got no other hope except for Jesus. And God is relentless in His ability to get us to that point, is He not? He'll, he'll do whatever it takes to get us there. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's a kid that is, that's kind of gone off the rails spiritually. Uh, maybe, maybe it is losing your job, and maybe it is your house gets foreclosed on. Uh, all of the things that we consider that would be things that would give us comfort and security, God is going to rip that rug out from under your feet because He loves you. He loves you too much for you to trust it. So those of you right now that don't know, you know, where the next paycheck's going to come from, where the next work's going to come from, as I've been talking to a couple of you this past week, or you, you don't know what's going to happen that me that medical situation, God is sovereign over those things, and He's got one purpose in it all to conform you into the image of Jesus. And one thing you can be for sure is. As uh, uh, Joseph said about the situation with his brothers in Gen Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God used for good. You can, you can be sure that is a promise for us to grab onto. That, that whatever we think is evil, whatever we think that is destroying us, it's actually working good into our hearts because it's working faith into us. God is relentless in His, in his demands to bring us under His Lordship. So look at Acts chapter 4. Verse 11 here, the, the, the offensive thing that, that Peter continues to proclaim to these guys comes from Psalm 118. He's quoting Psalm 118 here, and he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Remember guys, you guys thought Jesus wasn't good enough. He was too humble. He, he, he let those guys capture him and put him on the cross. The builders which has become the cornerstone. And then he goes on to say, hey, there's no other name that you can be saved in other than the name of Jesus. She's arrested. There's, I mean, you, if, you, if we go through this, there are at least nine different opposers of the gospel. There's, uh, so let's see, we've got uh, the people, verse 1, the priest, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees. Uh, you know, going up to verse 5, we've got the elders, the scribes, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander. We've got all these guys that are opposers of Jesus because the apostles are coming to proclaim this word that they don't believe. But if the word's not proclaimed, how can God grant faith for them to believe? He has to deconstruct everything before it can be reconstructed. There has to be a moment of crisis before there can be comfort and assurance. 
That's God's grace to us. I had a, I had a professor in college that, you're never going to forget what I'm getting ready to tell you, by the way, okay? When you read the Bible, you're never going to forget it. He, he used to tell me, here's how you can remember what the Sadducees believed. He said, you know, his name was Dr. DeClavon. He was like this really goofy professor, right? But he said, you know, he said, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they were sad, you see. But I don't usually have corny jokes like that, but I stole that, stole that from him because I still remember it. So you're never going to forget that, though. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. So, so we've seen that we have incredible hope in death, point one. Point two, the gospel advances in opposition. There's no other way. So instead of avoiding it, we should seek the face of the Lord when we face it. Should we not? That is the hope of the gospel. The third one is this. Jesus has to be our only way. Jesus has to be our only way. Read Acts 4.12. This is one of those verses in your Bible that you should have kind of like scribbled all over. One of those ones that you should have ingrained in your memory if you're able to. And he says this, and there's no other... There is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men which by we must be saved. So as you're tempted to put your faith and your hope in something else, you come back to this. There's, there's no one else other than Jesus that can save me. I can't save myself. My parents can't save me. Uh, you know, my job, whatever the name of that company is, that name can't save me. You know, no one else can save me than Jesus. And so we come back to this, we repent when we read this word because we realize that we have all these little false gods that we try to trust in. And whenever things get disruptive in those things that we worship, we tend to think that life is falling apart, but we're reminded that there's no other name that we can be saved in other than Jesus. I, uh, <clears throat> just several years ago, uh, we, had, we met this sweet couple from our neighborhood, and uh, really sweet couple. And they, uh, it was one of those things where I was going out to my mailbox, and I wasn't really in the mood to talk to anyone. I just wanted to check my mail. You know what I'm saying? But there just happens to be this sweet couple walking around my cul-de-sac. And so uh, <clears throat> I check the mail, and then I kind of walk off, and they're like, hey, how you doing? And I'm, I'm the pastor, right? Uh, so it's like... <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? And we just had, the, we struck up this conversation. It was this wonderful conversation. 15 minutes, you know, I'm sitting out in my PJs, checking them, and, and we're sitting here having this great conversation. I just felt like the Spirit told me, you know, hey, why don't you invite them over for dinner? Now, typically, I don't invite someone over for dinner the first time that I meet them because it's a, it's a pretty big process uh, in the Johnson household, but just really felt like God was calling us to that. So we invited them over for dinner a couple weeks later. And we are sitting around the dinner table having a nice feast. And, uh, and this couple, uh, they, they were just kind of talking to us. They found out that I'm a pastor. They weren't afraid. They still came to my house. So that was a good step, right? Because anytime you throw out the pastor card, you're just waiting for things to blow up. Uh, but anyway, they, they, uh, they came to the house. We're having dinner together. And then they began to tell us about their family. And they're like, yeah, my, uh, my family's from all of these different backgrounds. And I'm like, that's awesome. You know, I have some family that are Christians, some family that are Armenian, some family that are Catholic, some Muslim, some Buddhist, uh, some Hindu. I mean, all over the map, spiritually, they're family. And, uh, and so I'm like, well, that's awesome. You know, I have friends that are Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, you know, Catholic. I mean, I've got friends that are, that are every single one of those, those religions that you're talking about. And, and then uh, the lady goes on to say, well, you know, I think that they're, they're, all, gonna, they're all going to heaven. They're all uh, going to receive eternal life. And then she says something that I'll never forget. She says, what do you think? 
We just, we're having dinner together at the pastor's house. You know, my wife's like kicking me under the table. What, you know, she's like, what are you going to say? And she's like, I felt like you were quiet forever. And so then what I did is I, uh, I, I blamed it on Jesus. So here's what I did. I, I went to John 14, 6, just from memory, a, a verse that I'd memorized a long time ago. And I said, you know, I, you know, I have friends from all of those different, you know, religions as well. I, I do. And I love them all. They're great friends of mine. But, but Jesus says this. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The exclusivity of Jesus. And I dropped that bomb there, and I was like, oh, here we go. And they said, oh, that sounds great. That sounds nice. And we just kept going on with dinner. It was this amazing experience. Uh, I was terrified, and God had it like all handled. And uh, it started this great spiritual journey with, with us and this family. And um, and I, but I was terrified to proclaim that truth because I thought in my flesh, okay, they're going to run away. They're never going to trust me. They're never going to care about what we say. They're not going to care about the fact that we love them because our love for Jesus might trump our love for them in their mind because I said it this way. Uh, and, and I begin to think about that, that, that passage about there's no other name. And, uh, and then I think about the way that our culture thinks about this. You know, we live uh, in, the, in the 21st century in the United States, which is the melting pot melting pot of the world uh you know especially in Gwinnett County I think we have we're like the uh, we're like the case study for the rest of the country do you guys know that in Gwinnett County we are and so we you know we have lots of different world religions here and so you know in my neighborhood I'm driving down uh my uh my, my street and I see uh, a couple houses on, on my way down this little blue bumper sticker that says coexist on it and uh maybe yeah so it looks like that so the, the idea behind it uh is that um, and maybe you've seen these as you've driven around Atlanta. Maybe you have one on your car. I don't know. Uh, but the idea behind it is, is that we can all coexist regardless of how we, uh, what we believe to be true about God uh, and who we worship, that we can coexist. And, and I think about that, and, and like I, I don't get angry as I see that. Um, I, I really don't. I, I, don't get, I don't get frustrated. Um, but I get sad. It's, it saddens my heart to think that this is, this is our best hope. That we could coexist. Um, whether it be world religions, whether it be race, whether it be socioeconomics, whether it be any of that kind of stuff, that our best hope would be that we could, could coexist. But you guys, do you know that this is man's option for unity? This is the man-made version of how do we become one? How do we get to experience the appearance of unity together? But Jesus came to do much better work than this. Did He not? He came to do much better work than coexistence. I mean, that just sounds like a weird word, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you would want to say to your neighbor, I just want to exist with you? I mean, can we just exist together, maybe breathe the same air? That's not good news. You know what good news is? That we'd be reconciled to the Father through the blood of the Son together. That we would be able to see that everything that we have in common is because everything that we have in common is the Son. This is the work that Jesus came to do, and it will not be done apart from opposition. The Gospel is an extremely offensive message. I mean, when you read in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 9 and verse 14, I'll read them real quick. It says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means... This man has been healed. So, so basically what's going on here is this crippled man is standing there with them. And we see this in verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. So, so what's going on in this passage is Peter and John are, 
being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking through them to the Sanhedrin, which the Sanhedrin would be our version of kind of the Supreme Court. They're standing before them preaching. And this man is standing beside them. This, this evidence of grace, standing beside them. He's standing there with them. They see something. They have to see something. That this man had no power to change himself. He had absolutely no power. If this, man, if this man could have changed himself, do you think he would have decided to walk a long time ago? I think so. If he could have changed himself, he would have got up and stopped receiving alms and, and you know, kind of trounced into the temple a long time ago. He would, he would have gotten in there before then. But he couldn't change himself. So church, what do you do when you realize that you can't change yourself? What do you do? What do you run to when you realize that the same sinful nature that you want to avoid is living inside of you? What do you run to in those moments? Because none of us have the power to change ourselves. And here's the thing. We think that when we have to admit that we're powerless and weak and that we can't live together as one because we all believe different things about Jesus, that we, can't, that we just have to settle for existing, we think that this is a weakness. It's something to be avoided. We think that we realize that we're sinners, that we should run and hide like Adam and Eve did. But the good news of the gospel is this, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, that his power is made perfect in weakness. The only way that we can come to Jesus is in weakness. We can't come in strength. That's why we come to this table every single week. Because we realize we need to be strengthened by the power of the gospel which came through the cross and the resurrection. We come to Him in that way. So if our equation for salvation is Jesus plus anything else, we are worshiping a false God. We are not worshiping Jesus. Because the, the, the equation for salvation is that Jesus plus nothing else equals salvation. That, that, that's what they're proclaiming, and that's why it's so offensive, because these men that are sitting in the Sanhedrin examining this, this case of this man that's been healed, these men have built their lives on other things other than Jesus. And so those things have to be deconstructed before we can be built on the cornerstone that is Christ. So in our lives, you're going to experience some crisis, some chaos, as the gospel is deconstructing our sinful hearts and building us upon the foundation that is Jesus. So when you experience trial, when you experience turmoil, when you experience chaos and crisis, do you see Jesus in the middle of it? Jesus is coming to wreck your life in the best way. He is coming to mess you up. I mean, right? That's what He's come to do. Because there's no other name. God loves you too much to let you go on with your self-salvation project. He loves you way too much. The Gospel takes us from coexistence to being co-heirs with Christ. Isn't that a much better option for us to be co-heirs instead of co-existing? That's, that's the work of the Gospel. And as we think about our brothers and sisters, our friends, our neighbors that live around us that, that, that don't submit the need to Jesus Christ, and when they hear this, they're offended. How do we respond? When, when is the last time that we've considered a neighbor that doesn't follow Jesus? The fact that God has given us the best news in the world and give us a command and the power of the Holy Spirit to go and share the news. When is the last time that we've actually engaged in that? 
I'm not, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or anything like that. I just want to preach the whole counsel of God's Word to you because this is how the Gospel goes forth. I think our posture a lot of times is, well, I don't really know what the Muslims believe. I don't know what the Hindus believe. I don't know what the Baha'i faith believes. Therefore, then, I must not be the guy. I must not be the guy. Do you, do you think the Apostle Paul knew a lot about Gentile faith? No. He was a Pharisee. He didn't know anything about it. He was the, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, as he says. The Spirit gives us utterance in those moments. He gives us love. My, and I'll just, I'll just throw this out as a tidbit for you. My posture uh, in sharing the Gospel has been one of this. Is instead, of, instead of going to my, my neighbor when I first met, moved into Lawrenceville, uh, Rahid, instead of going to his house and saying, hey dude, I know everything about your Muslim faith. You know, I know, I, know every, I know that you're celebrating Ramadan right now. I know that you're doing this. I know that you're doing... Instead of going to him like that, you know the approach that I took to him? Rahid, teach me what you believe, man. I'd love to know what you believe. And you know what happened in those interactions or my, or my uh, friend Ronick, the Tindu? You know what happened in those interactions? Is I saw all these overlapping themes, all of these ways, all these ways to kind of get to God. And I began to see the heart of my brother to desperately be loved by God, but to, he never had any assurance because death was always the thing that was, he didn't know what to do with. I'm reminded that Jesus, only Jesus can bring life because only Jesus dealt with death. And so I get to speak the truth in love because we have this relationship because I love him enough to actually hear what he believes. What if we took that approach, church? You think that it would disarm the situation? You think it would diffuse all of the all of the, the issues that we have and all the insecurities that we have because most of, our, most of the impedances for us to share the gospel with other people are our own insecurities. They're our own insecurities. Well, what if I don't know this or I don't know that or what if they stump me? Have you ever thought that you could just say, I don't know? We can say that. That can be a response for a Christian. We can say, I don't know. And we can love each other in spite of that. So Jesus has to be our only way. And, and lastly, Here's one of the things that I take away from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 is this. This is beautiful news that salvation is more than we think it is. Salvation is so much more than we think it is. So when he says there's no other way salvation other than Jesus, he wants to, the hope of God is to turn our worlds upside down because salvation is just, not just a spiritual thing. It's not just a physical thing. It's, salvation is holistic in nature. And I want to take just a few moments as we close today to just kind of give you a crash course on what salvation is. And so we're going to be looking at a lot of Scriptures pretty quickly. You don't have to turn there. Maybe, maybe jot them down. So my, my question to you as we kind of get into this is this. What comes to mind when you think of salvation? Is it, you know, for the longest time for me, it was this get out of jail or get out of hell free card. There we go. There's this, hey, I'm going to live my life, but at least I know where I'm going when I die. You know, it was one of those kind of approaches. Or, or maybe salvation for you is, is, is it just, Jesus has just dealt with your past sins. So he's, he set you on this solid foundation now that you can build your own life. That you can go and you can actually like not have any more sin in your life and you can, you can follow God in your own strength. So maybe salvation you just deals with the past sin of your life. Or maybe salvation for you is, is, is maybe just this futuristic thing that you just long for and you just kind of kind of bunker down and hide in a bomb shelter until Jesus returns. I'm here to tell you that, that salvation 
is already and it's not yet. Salvation has come. He has healed us. He has cleansed us. His Spirit is with us, but we've not yet experienced its fullness. And so we're caught in this tension between the, the already, the things we've experienced, and the not yet, the, 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 the coming of the kingdom in its fullness. And so when we, when we look at salvation like this, we're free to say what Jack Miller said. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you'd ever dared imagine. <laughs> but you're more loved than you'd ever dare to hope. This is the salvation that Jesus came to proclaim to us. So let's look at, look, look, look at the components of salvation. The first, God calls us. So in Romans 5.8, the Scriptures say this, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, literally still sinning, like in the act of sin, while we were sinning, Christ died. So, so it wasn't like Jesus was on the cross and He's like, okay, well, at least, at least they're behaving themselves now. So I'll go ahead and die. No, no, no. We were sinning. In fact, we were, the, the disciples were sinning whenever he was on the cross. Remember, they scattered. They left him. We would have left him too. We would have left him too. We would have been in the same exact boat. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. So what does that mean about our calling? Who holds the security of our calling in Christ? Is it our obedience? Or is it the resurrection of Jesus? I think it's the latter. Because Jesus rose from the dead, He's strong enough to hold us even while we're still sinning. Now we're coming back to Him in faith and we're, we're trying to obey. We're repenting, but we're still sinners through and through. So He calls us. He calls us while we're sinners. He meets us where we're at. And then this conversion experience happens when we call upon the name of the Lord. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the dominion of darkness, so He's come and He's plucked us out of the dominion of darkness. And what has He done? He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So He's plucked us up out of the darkness. He's brought our dead bones to life, as Ezekiel 37 says. He has given us new life and He's transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So the kingdom of light is not something that you hope for in Christ. It is something that you experience right now and today. And a way, one way that we experience it is that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. A lot of times we get frustrated when we get convicted of our sin, don't we? We get, man, I wish I could just do better. Conviction of sin is a sign that God's presence is with you because He's purifying you and making you into the image of Jesus. So the, the kingdom of light, is it something that we long for more of? Yes, but it is already our reality, church. We're already in the kingdom of light. God, just like Jesus teaches His disciples to pray, in Matthew chapter 6, Luke chapter 10, he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done in the future. No, on earth as it is in heaven, right now. That's the prayer that he gives us because that's the work that he's doing. He's brought us into the kingdom of light. And it doesn't stop there, he justifies us. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, it says this right here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. And here's the, here's the key. For all have sinned to fall short of the glory of God. We're all on common ground in here. Every person on the face of the earth. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a 
propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So what's he saying here? Well, when we come to faith in Christ, when we call upon the name of Jesus and we repent of our sins, we are justified. We have a legal righteous standing before the Father. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer guilty because of the work of Jesus. So there's this big fancy theological term that's called passive righteousness. Now, my children don't experience a ton of passive righteousness. They have to obey to be righteous in my house, right? I mean, that's just one of those things. I mean, sure, we show grace, but it's, it's, like, it's like the story that you've probably heard before, like when you, you know, you, the child needs to be disciplined and, you, uh, and you, you physically discipline the child. But then one time you're like, hey, I'm going to show you grace today. I'm, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve uh, because I love you. And then next time they're like, hey, can you show me grace again? I mean, I, can, can I get some more of that grace, Dad? Well, this passive righteousness is what God gives us. We are doing nothing while God is making us righteous. So the law says, obey and you'll be righteous. What the law did was come to kill us all, didn't it? It it came to deconstruct us so that we could see that our only hope was in the passive righteousness that Jesus would impute to us, would give to us. So we have the perfect righteousness of God that is ours by simple faith in Jesus. It seems too easy, doesn't it? That's because God's work on the cross was that good. Was that good. Jesus is that good. And if that's not enough, we've got this idea of adoption, right? So not only does He make us legally right with God, but He makes us relationally right with God. Galatians 4, 6, and 7, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. You know what it cries out? Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Relationally, in salvation, we are made right with God. We have a restored relationship with our Father in Heaven. So for some of us, for the first time in our lives, we're able to look at our Father and hear the words, well done. You are well pleasing in my sight. Those are words that you never heard as a kid growing up. And those are words that you sure have never heard from God. All you've ever heard is you're a sinner. You feel like God is chasing you ready to hunt you down and destroy you. In Jesus, we are relationally made right with God. We have this relationship with the Father that we can count on because Jesus dealt with death. Tim Keller says it like this, it's only in the Gospel of Christ that we get the verdict before the performance. Think about that. We get the answer before we ever lift a finger. We get the verdict before we get the performance because the performance have already, has already been accomplished on the cross. Two more things. In sanctification, it's also part of this, this process of us being saved. Philippians 1.6 says this, He who began a good work in us will carry it to completion. Some of you are very frustrated with, how, uh, with your life as a Christian. You look at yourself in the mirror and you think, man, I'm a horrible Christian. I wish I could just obey more. I wish I could just be more generous. I wish I could give more of myself away. I wish, I wish my language wouldn't be like that. I wish I didn't gossip. I wish I didn't think those thoughts about other people. And we think about it like this. And what Philippians 1.6 tells us is that the ongoing work of God in our lives is part of the salvation process. You're not a finished product yet. You're not what you once were, but, but you're not what you're going to be either. That's the work that God wants to do because He began the work and guess what? He's jealous to complete the work in you. And so He's completing it today as you struggle with sin when you guys pick a restaurant after, 
after church today, or you, or you struggle to discipline your child, or you and your wife get into an argument this afternoon, he's working his grace into our lives. He's continuing to save us. He has not left us. He's sanctifying us. And last, but certainly not least, he promises to glorify us. This is the finished work of the Christian here. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So we look not to what's seen, but what's unseen. He's going to glorify us. He's going to make us whole. He's going to wipe away every tear. The tears that were shed in the garden and have continued to be shed until Revelation 21 comes, He's going to wipe them all the way. Not that that they were bad. They were necessary. Because it was God's kindness that led us to repentance. But He's going to wipe them away and He's going to glorify our bodies. He's going to glorify our spirits. And we are going to be forever in the presence, the full presence of Jesus. It's going to be a beautiful day. To sum it up, Charles Spurgeon talks about salvation like this, and I'll close with this. Salvation begins with us wandering sheep. Wandering a sheep, and it follows us through all of our mazy wanderings. It puts us on the shoulders of the shepherd. It carries us into the fold. It calls together the friends and the neighbors. It rejoices over us. It preserves us in that fold through life. And then at last, it brings us to the green pastures of heaven beside the still waters of bliss where we lie down forever in the presence of the chief shepherd, never more to be disturbed. That's the work that God came to do. That's why Jesus has to be the only way. That's why, church, we ought to think more about death because we'll think more about salvation. That's why we ought to do that. Salvation is way better than we think it is and Jesus is absolutely the only hope that any of us have. So let's pray to that Jesus. What do you say? Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for uh, the wonderful news of the Gospel. And Lord, I just pray this morning, uh, maybe some of us are hearing this really for the first time. And, uh, and the, I just know the Gospel is offensive because it uproots everything that we trust in. It uproots uh, all of our insecurity. Um, but that's a good thing. So God, I pray that You would continue this work of salvation in my brothers and sisters in this room, and I pray pray that you would begin that work in others. I pray that you give us confidence and boldness, not in who we are, but in the name of Jesus. And it's in that name that we pray this morning. Amen.